Amen. Would you remain standing and we'll continue in our worship with a reading from our passage today from Romans 2 verses 1 through 16. And before I read it, I just want to remind you that we are starting a third service here on Sunday morning. It will take place at 8.15. And so if God is moving in your heart, your family to make a missional move to free up a seat here for a neighbor or a friend who will be coming as we move into the holiday season and, and on into Easter, um, we want to free up some seats for people who need to find and follow Jesus to be here. So uh, if you'd be willing to consider that and come at 8.15, identical service, um, and you can register. You received an email last week, so you can follow that link or, or go online and let us know you're coming. You don't have to register, but it'll just let us know that you're, uh, that you're on your way. So two weeks from today, we'll be starting a third service at 8.15. This is God's word to you today from Romans, the second chapter, as we continue in our series. Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. You may think you can condemn such people, but you're just as bad. And you have no excuse when you say they are wicked and should be punished. You're condemning yourself. For you who judge others do these very same things. And we know that God and his justice will punish anyone who does such things. Since you judge others for doing these things, why do you think you can avoid God's judgment when you do the same things? Verse four, don't you see how wonderfully kind, tolerant and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sins? But because you're stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. He'll give eternal life to those who have kept on doing good, seeking after his glory and honor and immortality that God offers alone. But he will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey truth and instead live lives of wickedness. There will be trouble and calamity for everyone who keeps on doing what is evil, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile. But there will be glory and honor and peace from God for all who do good, for the Jew first and also for the Gentile, for God shows no favoritism. When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who do have God's law will be judged by the law when they fail to obey it. Verse 13, for merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts from their own conscience and their thoughts uh, accuse them or tell them they're doing right according to their conscience. Verse 16, and this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God through Christ Jesus will judge everyone's secret life. God's word to you today. You can be seated. Thank you. Let me read the first four verses from Romans 2 in our passage, because all of these passages, I think you would agree, are fairly dense. 
Let me, let me read the first four verses from the rendering of the message. Eugene Peterson rendered Romans 2 verses 1 through 4 this way. Just listen to this. He says, those people, referring to those Gentiles in Romans 1, are on a dark downward spiral. But if you think that leaves you on high ground where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping detection in your own crimes and misdemeanors. But God isn't so easily diverted. He sees right through all such smoke screens and holds, uh, and holds you to what you've done. Verses three and four. You didn't think, did you, that just by pointing your finger at others, you would distract God from seeing all of your misdoings and from coming down on you. Or did you think that because he's such a nice God, he'd let you off the hook? Better think this one through from the beginning. God is kind, but he's not soft. In kindness, he takes us firmly by the hand and leads us into radical life change. Have you ever heard the expression, or maybe you've used the expression, maybe even this week, it takes one to know one? This is exactly what Paul is saying as he opens up Romans chapter 2 and begins to speak to the Jew, to the religious person who grew up learning God's law when he says, it takes one to know one. C.S. Lewis said it this way in his work in Mirror Christianity in chapter 8 on pride. He said, prideful people can't stand other prideful people because they see themselves in them. Every time you judge someone else, there's typically something inside of you that relates to that person and can easily see what they're doing because it lives inside of you as well. This is what Paul is saying when he says essentially in Romans 2, it takes one to know one. Now let's put all this in context. As we've started our study of the book of Romans, we were introduced to Paul, we were introduced to the gospel. Last week, Paul began to talk to us to explain and explore the depths of our brokenness as, as a humanity. And he starts with a Gentile. For those who grew up culturally outside of the understanding of God, they didn't understand God's law. They were non-Jews. And he begins to explain their brokenness. And you need to know in context when letters like this, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a real people just like us in a place called Rome, a gathered group of Christians who were worshiping God together in Rome, Jews and Gentiles. And when they would read the letter, they wouldn't read it individually. Most people in the first century were illiterate. And so leaders in the church would read the letter out loud in a public setting like we are today. So everybody would be hearing it together. And so you can imagine after uh, Paul gets through Romans chapter one, where he's talking about the Gentile, those who grew up non-Jewish without God's law, they didn't know him and all the spectacular ways that they're missing God very overtly for everyone to see. All the Jews in the audience would be going, yes, preach. Yes, this is, go get them, Paul. We love this. Amen, amen. And then Romans 2, 1 is a cold bucket of water on the Jews. As Paul says, you think that you can judge the Gentiles and that you're better than them? It takes one to know one. And then he begins to unpack the brokenness of those who grew up in a religious circle, 
who grew up as Jews and understanding the things of God. He turns his attention from the irreligious, if you're taking notes, to the religious here. And he says, you're doing the exact same thing. Again, Lewis says this about people. He says there's basically two types of people. The first person is the person that's living in a spectacular way against God, doing whatever they want to do in their own freedom and in self-indulgence for pleasure and everything that they think they want out of life. And it's very clear to see that they're living apart from God. And then Lewis says, and the other way that people miss God is that they're really proud that they don't live the first way. And wherever you might be on that spectrum, right? And most of us, if, you know, if you're like me, you, you dance back and forth between both of them. You miss God in very overt ways that you're not following his ways in your life. And then you feel prideful in the ways that you do think you are. And in both ways, we miss God everywhere in between. And this is exactly what's happening in Romans 1 and 2. Romans 1 is about the person that is in a very overt way living apart from God. Everybody can see it. Romans 2 are the covert ways and the secret ways that the religious are living apart from God. And what is the point of all this? That every person needs the gospel. And again, Paul is trying to explain how bad the bad news is. This is the bottom line for Romans 1, 18 through 3, 20. You can't know how good the good news is of Jesus until you know how bad the bad news is of us. And the bad news of the gospel is just as much a part of the good news. You can't have good news without bad news. You can't see how great and glorious and amazing grace is until you know how stunningly spectacular your brokenness is. And the more in touch we are with our brokenness, the more in touch we become with the goodness of the grace of God. And so the whole point of Romans 1 through 3 is Paul trying to get his audience, the church, Jew and Gentile alike, and everybody in between, the irreligious and the religious, to understand their need for the gospel of grace. And what is the gospel? That Jesus did for you and for me what we could not and what we would not do for ourselves. And it's only through the good news of the gospel, what Jesus did on the cross, that we have access to the table, that we have an invocation, or invitation from King Jesus to sit at his table, not because of what we've done, whether irreligious or religious, but because of what he has done. But guys, you can't accept the good news of Jesus and over and over again through the course of the gospels when we see the life of Jesus, the people that rejected Jesus were the ones that thought that they were okay on their own, that their morality and their religiosity would save them. The people that came flocking and flooding to Jesus were those who knew that they needed him, that they were broken. Here's a record scratch. Jesus said, prostitutes and tax collectors are getting into the kingdom before you religious people. Ouch. Why, how do you think that went over? Why do you think he said such a stunning thing? Because he said, they know they need grace. They know they need the completed work of Jesus. They're not hiding behind a veneer of religiosity or their own moralism or their own works. They know how bad the bad news is and therefore they know how good the good news is. This is what Paul is doing. If you're taking notes, this is how this breaks down in way of outline. 
So in verses, uh, chapter 1, verses, one uh, verses 18 through 32, we covered it last week. Paul talks about the brokenness of the Gentile. For those who grew up irreligious, outside of the things of God, they didn't, they didn't learn the scriptures. They didn't know the teachings. Up until I was 10 years old, I didn't know any of this. I grew up in basically a Gentile home. We, we didn't really attend church regularly. I didn't learn the stories of God until my parents met Jesus. And we began to understand that. Maybe you grew up outside of a household of faith. And, and, and you're very in touch with your need for God. But Paul also addresses, as we get to chapter 2 in our passage today, the person that grew up in a religious circle. In this context, the Jew that learned the stories of God, that learned the things of God. And maybe this is you. As far as you can remember, you grew up going to church, learning the things of God, hearing the things of God, being around the people of God. And Paul says, guess what? You're still broken. You still need grace. And he spends chapter two and into chapter three talking about the, the insider, if you will, and our need for grace. And we'll talk a little bit more about that next week. And then on October the 15th in two weeks, Paul ends this section on brokenness by saying, guess what? Whether you are irreligious, you're religious, or you dance back and forth, or you're somewhere in between, everybody is broken all fall short of the glory of God. And you say, man, this is a downer. Like, this is just a bummer. Like, where's all this going? I just, I came to church to hear a good message. This is a great message. You can't know how great this message is until you know how bad the brokenness of your life is. You've heard me say it a million times, I'm gonna keep saying it. Christianity has been perverted in many circles to be six steps to a better you. A behavior modification program, it's not. It's a life transformation relationship. It's not, Jesus didn't come to make you better, guys. Jesus came to make you new. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. And we can't know the message of the gospel until we know also the message of our brokenness, which is a part of the good news. This is good news. This is great news because it drives me to Jesus. And in our passage today and next week, we're going to look at how even in religious circles, inside the house, inside the church, we can be lost and we can think that we don't need grace. Let's go back to chapter one. If you have your scriptures, look there. In verses 29 through 30, Paul gives this list of brokenness. Again, in the context to the outsider, to the Gentile. And he basically is building to this. And he says, here's all the ways that you're missing God. I just want to read it to you. Verses 29 and 30 from chapter 1. Paul says, their lives, talking about people who are living far from God however they want to. Their lives become full of every kind of wickedness, sin, greed, hate, Envy, myrtle, murder, quarreling, deception, uh, malicious behavior, gossip. Are you with me? Okay. This is great, right? They're backstabbers. They're haters of God. They're insolent. They're proud. They're boastful. They invent new ways of sinning and they disobey their parents. And we laughed at that one last week because it's like, really? Disobeying your parents fits in? Why? Because the original intention of God's plan was for children to experience the goodness and the grace of God and be ushered towards Jesus through their family. That moms and dads who had experienced the grace of Jesus would bring their children to the feet of Jesus. And so the outflow of people rejecting God is also that this gets passed down generationally to the next generation where they reject their parents and the gift that parents can be. 
And so Paul says it's the breakdown of society, it's the breakdown of family as people choose to live however they want to. But what do you notice about this list? I mean, there's a lot of words, there's a lot of brokenness. I wonder where each of us finds ourselves in this list because we're in here. What I notice about it though is that these are not primarily actions. There are actions in here. Most of the things that Paul lists here in the way that we miss God in Romans 1, 29, 30 are attitudes. Their postures, their beliefs. Why is this important? Because you're going to miss God first in your heart, and then it's going to be evidenced in your hands and your words. And so there's always the story under the story. So when people are behaving all kinds of different ways, behavior over time, the pattern of behavior is one of the best indicators of belief. Because what I'm believing comes out in my words and in my repeated actions. We talked about last week, everybody has bad moments. Everybody has bad hair days. But the pattern of behavior, looking at someone's behavior over time, is the best indicator of belief. What am I believing about the story of God, the story of myself, the story of other people? It comes out in my words. It comes out in my repeated actions. And so this list is full of beliefs and attitudes and posture. And and so when we see this, it should be like a blinking light to us that it comes from within. This is what Paul is talking about. It's the story you're believing about God or not believing or partially believing about God. And this happens for the irreligious and the religious. Now, let me address something here because there's a word that pops out in Romans 2. And the word is judging or judgmentalism. And many of you, you know, you've been taught in, in different Christian circles, you know, we're not to judge. And we're not. But let me explain the difference between passing judgment and judgment. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.15, Paul says that we should judge or evaluate behaviors. In other words, we should be able to determine what is right and wrong through understanding God's word, the conscience that God has given to us, and the spirit, more, more than anything, that lives within us as believers to judge right and wrong, to evaluate, to discern right behavior from wrong behavior, things that are in accord to God's will and out of accord with God's will. If you went today, if we left here today and you went down to the Exxon station and I saw you robbing the Exxon station and you passed me on the way out and I just said, you know, great to see you today. It was, I mean, good to have you in church. I hope you'll come back sometime and you just with your bag and face mask on just walked out and I never said anything like you know you probably shouldn't be doing this 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 isn't God's best for you it's probably not going to lead you to a good path you just took money that doesn't belong to you all kinds of dangerous things happening here if I just let it pass by would I be loving you would that be a loving thing to do especially with a brother or a sister that you care for no God's called us to evaluate and discern right and wrong behavior and in truth and in love and in graciousness to help restore people back to the true story and how they're meant to be living. So when you hear people say, especially inside the church of God, inside the circle of our family of belief and and followers of Jesus, you know, I can't judge. Well, no, we're supposed to evaluate and discern right and wrong behavior in ourselves first and then very, very carefully, according to Paul, and helping other brothers and sisters to hold them accountable. It's how God designed us to be. The difference here is passing judgment. So, I mean, you could read Romans 1 and go, well, that's pretty, that's pretty judgy. But that's not the posture. The whole reason Paul is naming those beliefs and some actions and behaviors is to help restore people back to their senses and experience the goodness of the good news of Jesus. 
what, what, what is wrong here that Paul's calling out, particularly in verses 1, 2, and 3, is passing judgment on someone. In other words, saying, Jesus, please get off your throne and let me sit there and I will pass judgment and render, render consequences and punishment to said people in my life. That I not only see wrong behaviors, but I actually am going to be the, the judge, jury, and the executioner here. I'm going to, I'm going to exact your punishment and consequence. I, I love what Keller says about this. He says, particularly for this Jewish audience, this insider group, this religious group that has just heard the Gentiles, you know, get called out on their behaviors and the ways that they're missing God and their beliefs as well. And they've probably crossing their arms, nodding their head, and now he's calling them out. And he says, you're passing judgment. And he, uh, Keller says, passing, passing judgment is not simply saying that's wrong. It's not God's best for you. Let me help show you another way. Let me walk with you. Let me pray for you. Let me love you. Let me, let me help hold you accountable in a loving way. No, it's not simply saying that is wrong, but accompanying it with a particular attitude and posture, basically saying, you are wrong. You are lost not the behavior, and I'm glad for it. Because now I feel better about myself. In other words, to pass judgment is to believe that others are worthy of God's judgment while you are not. Do you hear the difference? Judging behavior, 1 Corinthians 2.15, evaluating, discerning right and wrong is something God's called us to in humility and love, always with the goal of restoration. Passing judgment is basically saying, I will sit in judgment of you and I will pass judgment on you and I'm glad for it and I'm glad that you're lost and I'm glad that you're gonna experience consequences so that I can feel better about myself, which basically is comparison. And all comparison is evil. So when I compare myself, I'm comparing your outsides with my insides, it's always uh, an unfair bargain. And I'm judging you according to what I can see, not the, the, the beliefs of your heart and really trying to get you back into the presence of Jesus and his will for your life. This is the difference between judging or discerning or evaluating might be a helpful word and passing judgment on someone that, God, or that Paul is calling out. Look at Romans 2.3. Do you think you're gonna escape God's judgment? This is the way that Paul brings them to their senses. When you're passing judgment, do you think you're going to escape King Jesus's judgment over your life? Imagine, Francis Schaeffer said this, imagine if you were born, when you were born, there was an invisible tape recorder. Some of you remember what that is. There was an invisible tape recorder that was put around your neck and it recorded every single one of your words since you could begin to form words. And then what if at the end of your life, God just simply said, hey, I'm just going to roll the tape. I'm just gonna roll the tape and I'm gonna evaluate accordingly. How would that work out for us? You know the commercial where it's like, let's throw the challenge flag? Yeah, I love those. Like, just let me throw the red challenge flag and let's go back and, and do the replay. Let's look under the hood and replay every moment of your life. Every hidden attitude, every thought that went through your heart and your mind. Jesus said, I'm telling you, look, not only is adultery being with someone that's not your spouse wrong, but if you've thought about it, you've already committed adultery. Whoops. So it's not just the behavior, it's what? It's the belief. It's my attitude, it's my posture. And in both ways, overtly and covertly, I'm missing God. 
I don't know about you, but when I think about that standard, somebody throwing the flag on me and going back and replaying every moment of my life, how do I think that's going to work out? And oftentimes, judgmentalism or a judgmentalism attitude towards others or passing judgment on others is a, is a way to, what Peterson said, a cover for my own brokenness. Look over here, God. Don't look here. Look at these people. Look at this deer over here. Look at this deer. It's on fire. Don't look at me. Don't look over here. Look at all these people doing all these crazy things. And it's a covert way pointing fingers to distract from my own brokenness. Condemning others while excusing ourselves is what allows us to hang on to both our self-righteousness and our sin. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about in Romans 2, particularly in verse 4. He says, you know, don't you know the kindness of God, the patience of God, the tolerance of God, and the kindness of God, his character is meant to what? To turn us, the word is repentance, to change us, to turn us back towards his grace and the true story of our need for him. That's why he postures himself in the way he does towards us in his kindness and his love. But the self-righteous person and self-righteous religion is as much a rejection of God as self-centered irreligion. Let me say that again. Self-righteous religion, moralism, thinking I can do it without God in my own behaviors, my own goodness, is as much a rejection of God as self-centered irreligiosity. And God, or Paul masterfully sets before us these two types of people that Lewis calls out, the self-centered irreligious, Romans 1 if you're taking notes, and the self-righteous religious, Romans 2. And he says they're both missing God. Here's the bad news. Both of them are broken. They're both in need of God's grace, which is a part of the good news. So these are the same two people that Jesus sets before us in one of his most famous stories, by the way. A story about a father and what we've learned, a prodigal. But actually, it's a broken-hearted father, Luke 15, and two lost boys. And they're the two people that Paul talks about here in Romans 1 and 2. And by the way, guys, we're all in here too. And I wonder where you would find yourself in this story. Go read it for yourself this week, Luke 15, the prodigal son. But it's actually two lost boys and a very broken-hearted father. The younger boy lives however he wants to. He's the self-centered, irreligious Romans 1 person who's living however they want to live, very in front and out front for everyone to see, spectacularly sinning for everybody to see. He takes his inheritance, he spends it on all kinds of frivolous things, and he ends up very, very broken. And it's very clear for everyone to see that he's licentious, he's materialistic, he's disobeying his father and, and, and the will for his life that, that the father has. It's clear and obvious for everyone to see that he's living a self-indulgent, self-centered, self-focused, irreligious life, okay? Can't we all agree that the Romans one person is missing God and God's best for their life? Of course we can. But here comes the punch. The older brother the dutiful brother, the one who stayed home, the self-righteous brother is missing God as well. He's the Romans 2 person. What does rebellion look like inside the house? Well, he's obedient. He's compliant with everything the father says, but he has a secret. Romans 2.16. He has a secret. And what's the secret? 
The secret is that on the outside, his, his uh, devotion to duty, to following the Father's will, to, to being the one that didn't rebel, the one that stayed home, that did all the right things. But he has this terrible secret. And the secret is that he doesn't really believe in the grace of the Father. He has a secret resentment, a bitterness. He's passing judgment on his younger brother that does what? Turns and comes back home. And the father welcomes him and places his ring on his finger as a sign of identity and a robe on him and throws a party and invites the elder brother to come and to celebrate his younger brother's return. And what does the older brother do? The Romans 2 person do here in the story. He can't bear to come to the table. I will not come in the house. I will not sit at the table and eat and drink and celebrate repentance and turning of my younger brother because I'm the good brother. I've done everything right, dad. And you never threw a party for me. You never invited me to this table. I'm not getting, listen for the comparison, I'm not getting what the younger brother is. And I'm the good one. I'm the obedient one. I've done everything you've told me to be. And they're both missing God. David Wilcox, who's a great artist and songwriter, said it this way in a song about older brothers, which many of us are older brothers and sisters in here. He says, you taught me well not to kick under the table, but to kick under my breath instead. In other words, mom and dad, you taught me to be compliant, to be a good little boy, to be a good little girl. But what I also learned by all my dutiful behavior and my goodness is that I'm just going to kick under my breath and my words and secretly in my heart instead of overtly under the table. I'm going to do everything you tell me to do to be a good little boy and a good little girl. But somehow underneath, I'm still missing the grace of God and I'm worshiping my goodness the elder brother, the Romans 2 person that Paul's talking to here, secretly resents the younger brother. That's his secret. And he passes judgment back to that upon them to where he can't celebrate his return and his repentance. He refuses to celebrate the return brother and instead sits outside and pouts. Now, let's get very real here. Most churches, Keller says, Tim Keller says, are full and run and are led by older brothers and sisters. So here's, here's the question for us, older brothers and sisters. If you struggle with a, a self-reliance on your behavior, your duty, your, your, your goodness, will we celebrate younger brothers and sisters coming home? Will we create space for younger brothers and sisters to come home and to change their ways? Will we invite them to the same table that we're invited to by the Father? Or will we continue to compare ourselves to them of what we didn't get of how we're not getting as much as the younger brother is. The point of the story of Romans 1 and 2, the point of the story of Luke 15 that Jesus tells is that one is lost, the younger brother is lost in his own self-indulgence and one is lost, the older brother, in his self-righteousness. One is lost out loud, everyone watch this, very clear for everyone to see. He's lost out loud, the other one's lost in his secrets and silence. One is lost, man, this is, this, is, this is a hard word. One is lost outside the house 
and one is lost right inside the house. One's lost outside the church, one's lost inside the church because they don't think they really need grace in the same way that the younger brother or sister does. From the appearances, the father has only one lost son, but here's the truth. The lost son is different from the one that you think it is. We're presented that the younger brother is the lost son, but at the end of the story, he's found. And the one that actually was lost is the older brother that did everything, quote unquote, right. But he had a secret. And the secret was that his heart was not warm to God. And he wasn't warm to his younger brother and other people that behave that way to return back to the father and receive grace. Two lost boys, two lost groups of people. And Paul says here in Romans 2, you're the same. Whether you're lost in your self-centered irreligiosity or you're lost in your self-righteous religiosity, you're both missing grace. And we can see it here that Paul's connecting these two dots. Everyone watch this. In Romans 2 verse 5. Romans 2 verse 5 says this. But because you are stubborn and you refuse to turn from your sin, you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself for a day day of anger is coming where God's righteous judgment, his, again, opposition to evil, will be revealed. The two words there, stubborn and refusal, are two Greek words, okay? The New Testament was, was written in Koine Greek, a common kitchen language Greek, And these two words for stubbornness and refusal are an indicator of what Paul means here. Because every time these two words are used, the same two words that are written here in Romans 2, 5, they're always written in the context of idolatry. What is idolatry? Idolatry is the worship of anyone or anything other than God. So let's put it in the context of our older brother, younger brother, of our Romans two person that's missing God and our Romans one person that's missing God. How would they be idolatrous people? How would they be worshiping? Well, the younger brother, the Romans one, that's very clear out loud for everyone to see, is worshiping his freedom. He's worshiping his pleasure, which gets displayed in all kinds of ways through the uh, accumulation of power, uh, freedom and sexuality, um, uh, chasing of all kinds of different things in life. It's very clear to see you're just living for yourself, very self-centered. But the older brother, the religious, is worshiping his goodness. He's worshiping his own morality. He's worshiping his pedigree. He's worshiping the fact that he stayed in the house, that he doesn't need God's grace as much as you need God's grace. And both of them are worshiping someone or something other than the true God. And everywhere in between, guys. So reliance, listen to this, reliance on God's rules, Romans 2 person, is as much self-reliance and God rejection as ignoring God's rules. Let me say this one more time. And this may be a record scratch for some of you. Reliance on God's rules is as much self-reliance and God rejection as ignoring God's rules. In other words, I think I can get around the cross in Jesus because I think I'm good enough. I can keep all the rules. And we talk about this all the time. Whenever I'm my own judge, because if you're passing judgment on other people, guess who else you're passing judgment on? Yourself. And we always evaluate ourselves a little bit higher or a lot higher than we really are. 
and I'm always a little bit better or a lot better than I actually am. And, and, and this is what this means, that when I'm relying on keeping the rules, I'm just as much in need of God's grace as if I'm breaking the rules. Neither are going to save me, Romans 2, verse 5. Paul is showing us in Romans 2 that the religious people, the Jews, need the good news of Jesus just as much as the irreligious people, the Gentiles. And he's writing again the letter to the church, Jews and Gentiles, people that you know, came from very different backgrounds, that, that come from very different places, just like our church, that all have this in common, their own brokenness. And then just for time's sake, verses 6 through 15 in Romans 2, if you're following along, is the outflow of God's judgment on religious people who refuse to turn to the grace of God and so are squarely standing in the judgment of God because God is going to judge. And here's the deal, guys. God's going to judge by our deeds, right? And all of us fall short. So when we read verses 6 through 15, what it's pointing us to, spoiler alert when we get to Romans 3, is that the law leads me to a place to know that if I'm being judged by my deeds, both good and bad, I'm going to be found wanting. And the purpose of the law is to lead me to grace. So knowing that I can't stand on my own in my own judgment, for my goodness and my wickedness, to know that every single person is in need of God's grace, this is the point. That knowing that I'm standing, that, that, that King Jesus, the only rightful judge, will judge my actions, drives me to the cross or should drive me to the cross. This is the point. And then we get to verse 16, and I'll close here. Paul concludes this understanding of what's coming if we don't go back to grace and to the gospel. If we don't come back to it's God's work on my behalf, not my work. If we don't do that, this is what happens. Listen to these words, verse 16. And this is my message that I proclaim. So some of your translations say, this is the good news I proclaim. This is the message that I was set apart for as an apostle. This is the reason why I'm a doulos to Jesus, where I'm coming to proclaim a message to you of God's goodness and his grace. But listen to what's a part of this message, that the day is coming when God through Christ will judge. So understanding that should drive me back to the message the message of, do I want God to, to see my works or do I want him to see the work of Jesus on my behalf? Whether I consider myself to be irreligious or religious, good or bad, whatever my posture is, or somewhere in between or back and forth moment by moment, it's meant to drive me back to the gospel, that everybody needs the gospel. Why? Because he's going to judge everyone's what? We'll judge everyone's yeah, you've got a secret. And the secret is for many older brothers and sisters that you think you're better than others. You think your goodness is somehow gonna pass the test and that you're not equally in need of the grace of God. And this has everything to do with how you see God and how you see yourself and how you see other people. What is the point the point here is that all of us need Jesus. All of us need the message of the gospel of grace that left unto myself in my irreligiosity, left unto myself in my religiosity, in my perceived badness or my perceived goodness, that I'm lost without the grace of God. That I'm not going to be able to pass judgment. What am I being judged towards? What's the standard? 
Holiness. What is holiness? Perfection. Let's throw the challenge flag on ourselves. Any of you going to pass that test? So let's go back to the message. And the need for God's grace because of my brokenness. This is what Paul is trying. He's on his tiptoes screaming out. Don't you see that you need the gospel? Older brothers, younger brothers, religious people, irreligious people. All of us are depending on the work of Jesus and not on ourselves. Let me finish here. We cannot, we cannot appreciate who Jesus is unless we first have acknowledged who we are. This is the message of Romans. We cannot appreciate who Jesus fully is until we have acknowledged who we fully are. In other words, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, sits at the intersection of the story of Jesus and my story. And the more I understand the brokenness of my story in irreligious ways that are clear for everyone to see and in religious ways that are secret, that are covert in my heart, the more I'm driven to the goodness of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. But I have to see them together. I have to equally see the bad news with the good news. Listen to what Charles Simeon said. Charles was a a famous preacher and he said this, there are two objects that I've desired to behold or to see. One is my own brokenness and vileness, which many of us don't wanna see. And he said, the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And then he said this, I've always thought that they should be viewed together. I cannot see the glory of the face of Jesus and his goodness, the majesty of the good news of the gospel and how good the good news really is until I've seen how bad the bad news is, how bad my brokenness and vileness is. Let me say it another way, bottom line, you cannot know how good the good news is until you know how bad the bad news is. To Christ be the glory today.